This is Abby, and you are listening to Upzoned. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby and I'm joined today with Eric Kronberg, who is a principal at Kronberg Urbanists and Architects based in Atlanta, Georgia. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. I, I don't know if people who are listening to this would know who who you are. I think quite a few people probably do who are kind of in in the the CNU world and planning and architecture world. But could you provide a little bit of an introduction of yourself for those who may not have met you before? Absolutely, Abby. Thank you for having me. So uh, self-described moniker of a zoning whisperer, you know, I'm an architect and urban designer and developer. Uh, and lead uh, a firm in Atlanta that focuses on all of those things. We do a little bit of self-development on the side. Most of our work for clients is around urban redevelopment, housing infill, um, policy strategies, basically pulling together the pieces of neighborhood redevelopment. How do we make our neighborhood stronger and more revitalized, you know, inclusive and attainable and vibrant? Those are our buzzwords we love to, to, to always focus on. And so we spend a lot of time and a range of areas because it's, you know, getting good inclusive redevelopment is hard. So you have to understand finance, you have to understand infrastructure, stormwater, parking policies, zoning, you know, politics. And then we get to do architecture after we kind of work through all that. But we love to be in the mix of all of those things to help communities be better and stronger. I'm really glad that you were able to join us today because today we're going to be covering an article that is specifically based in Atlanta. I also think that your firm and your team is one of the best with really getting into the nitty gritty of how development actually works, which I think is unique for an architecture firm, um, an urban design firm. So I'm really glad you were able to join us. And also you are involved with Incremental Development Alliance for many years. Yeah, we um, helped pulled together the second incremental development one day workshop in Atlanta after Duncanville. I think this was back in 2015 or 2016. So I've been really proud and glad to help InkDev for the last you know, seven or eight years. It's been a great ride. Well, thanks for so much for joining me today. Um, the article that we are covering was published in Atlanta Civic Circle by Sean Keenan, and it is entitled Atlanta Plans to Embrace European Style Social Housing. So the Mayor's Office of Atlanta, Georgia, is forming an urban development corporation to produce mixed income housing aided by their affordable housing trust fund. This initiative would essentially be staffed by real estate professionals who can help leverage publicly owned property and partner with private developers and build affordable housing in the city. According to the article, development corporations are very common in European countries, and this model would combine the best of U.S. style public housing models with the best of private sector market rate development. The outcome of this pilot project is it's it's within this overall pilot program called Putting Assets to Work, which is shortened to PAW. Um, and Atlanta, as I understand it, is one of several cities that is involved in this initiative. 
And it's intended to help cities reassess their holdings of things like public land and start to develop the idea of this urban wealth fund that would maximize the public assets that they have. And developing mixed income housing is really one component of the overall strategy. I think today we'll focus on the mixed income housing aspect, but it sounds like there's kind of an overall philosophy and Urban 3 is involved among other groups that are thinking about ways of maximizing the public sector wealth. So as I understand it, this model would involve these development corporations building mixed income housing and basically making them either completely publicly owned or partially publicly owned long term. And there would be provisions for affordable housing where a third of units would be uh, available to households that earn no more than 80% of area median income. And maybe we can get into what what those calculations mean. Um, And there would be more that would be available to even a lower threshold of area median income. So this is very different than the typical HUD or LIHTC approach um, that has become very competitive in recent years. I think that before we get into the the specifics of this model and some of the ideas behind it, it might be helpful, Eric, if you could talk a little bit about what makes up a capital stack. Because what we're talking about here is how the public sector can step in to support a portion of the overall cost of development in order to make projects more affordable to people who need housing. Do you think, could you provide us maybe a capital stack 101? Sure. And so by capital stack, you know, what are the, you know, sources and uses is another fund development term, but like, what are the the cost components of a project, right? And, and how do you, how do those get paid for? And so at a very basic level, there's um, four main components. You know, there's your land cost. Um, you've got soft costs, which are, you know, design fees, permit fees, you know, really fees for, um, things that are not sticks and bricks, right? You've got horizontal cost, which is all the, you know, pipes, sewers, curbs, gutters, things of that nature, sidewalks, tree, street trees. And then you got vertical construction cost, right? So those are all the cost. And then how you pay for it on the capital side is usually some form of debt and equity, right? So equity is, you know, raised by um, you know, your capital partners or, you know, the groups putting cash into the deal, and the debt is coming from often a range of sources, but usually the simplest is a loan from a bank, right? And oftentimes, you know, the capital side, the, the, the equity side, I'm sorry, can raise a certain amount of money and the bank's willing to raise a certain amount of money, but or lend a certain amount of money. But when you want to have some form of workforce housing, there's not enough income to justify all the costs. So there's a gap. So in a capital stack, particularly in workforce housing or affordable housing projects, You've got to like you got to bridge that gap. How do you fund that gap? And so you're looking at a range of sources, sometimes from federal tax credits or local kinds of subsidy to make the project viable because there's not enough income coming in from the reduced rents to make the project pencil. And just as kind of disclaimer, you know, oftentimes cities will want to have a lot of really affordable outcomes, which means decreased revenue. Um, and they're shocked at how much they would have to put into the deal from land and subsidy or otherwise to get those outcomes. That's part of the challenge of having a functional project in a stressed capital stack. Yeah. 
I, I wonder from your perspective, uh, is land in Atlanta valuable enough for that to make a significant impact to the overall cost of building housing? Uh, great question. And so in a typical development deal, and these are all back of napkin rule of thumbs, everything's special and different, but like usually the land cost is between 10 to 20% of the total project cost. Um, you know, if you're paying more than that, you're really paying a lot for the land and you know, something is probably out of whack. But, you know, 10, 15%, like, that's a big deal. Like, that's a big chunk of a project, but it's still also only 10 to 15% of a project, right? So if a city were to put in free land, I say that in air quotes, um, that could really help. But, you know, if revenues are really reduced because rents are constrained, because that's the goal and the objective, free land usually doesn't get you there, like not even close. So there's usually more to it than just free land. Um, unless you're in a very high demand city where you have a portion of market rents that are so robust that they carry things. But with costs being as high as they are right now, I mean, Atlanta, we have pretty high rents. So we have some benefit to that. But costs are so high on the construction side that we're not able to make it up on the rent side. And rents have been flattening over the last six to eight months as well. Gotcha. It sounds like you're familiar with this initiative that's been going on in Atlanta. I'm sure there's been a lot of research behind it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what your perspective is on this? I think the the headline that we have here that we're looking at today is, is kind of clickbaity, I know. And I think people are going to react in all different kinds of ways because it's like, oh, European social housing. But what they're really talking about is leveraging development corporations and having uh, public sector development corporations think a little bit more like developers. Is that how you see it? Yeah. And I want to just as a disclaimer, I'm speaking for myself, from my own perspective. I'm friends with several folks in the mayor's office who are really involved in this. I am not speaking for them. This is my own opinion. So just, you know, get that on tape and record. I, I do think that there's also a level of incremental approach that they're thinking about, which is healthy. One is, you know, with a lot of our time at Inc. Dev, we Try to help municipalities think like developers. Think about how to maximize their assets, get better return on their land. A lot of, you know, Joe Minicosi, Urban Three's work is like, you know, is your land working for you or not? Like, what are the outcomes to have better, you know, tax productivity on a per acre basis, right? So all that stuff is having a city be aware of that. One is a great first step. And then two, you know, one of the the double-edged positive negative with our current mayor is he's very focused on affordable housing. He very much wants to get public sector land put into better production. The challenge is he's very scared of zoning. And so if you're not willing to tackle zoning, there's a limit to how much you can do to tackle some of these core issues. But they're really trying to push the public sector land as an option to get more housing outcomes. And that's not bad at all. Our position in our office is just not enough. But we're not we're not trying to describe we're supportive of these efforts. These are good directions to push in. But one of the great conversations I had with a couple of folks is that a very simple perspective they see is that there's multiple valuable parcels of land around the city that the city owns and controls that they would be willing to put into a development deal and they would like to get paid out for the land as part of that deal, but they could get paid out at the end. It's a lot easier to make a deal work if you don't have to pay for the land until the project's done, right? When you have to pay for the land early, that means you have to have a lot of money early to take down that cost. And then as 
generating interest or causing you know, stress on the deal, if you can pay for the land, you know, I say last, you know, more or less towards the end, it gets a lot easier to put together financing and, and figure out what's viable and takes a lot of those pressures off. And so they're at least they're thinking about that at a minimum. How do we put the land in to get things going? How do we leverage the assets we have? So, I, you know, I'm a little bit hesitant you know, walk before you run. Don't try to go be a development corporation and put in the streets and spend a lot of money in infrastructure and stuff like that. Work on finding your lower hanging fruit and getting that into production with partners. And so I do think, you know, there's a great article I'm sure we can share from Governing Magazine that's much less clickbaity and more thorough in what they're trying to do. But just getting public land out there and generating tax revenue with thoughtful projects, like that's a good effort. I completely agree. And I know Kansas City is thinking about the similar kinds of ideas because we have so much publicly owned land. Um, it's probably not valued at the level that it is in Atlanta. And I wonder how much viable vacant land that is publicly owned Atlanta has to make these projects work because a, a lot of cities will have these holdings, but you know, maybe there are neighborhoods where the it's just not quite there to make something like this work. There's there's almost like probably a Goldilocks zone where something like this could work as well as dynamics that are going on with the actual pieces of land. Like you said, every project is special and different and, you know, maybe has uh, outdated infrastructure or land assembly issues. But what I see this as a benefit being that a development corporation can not only provide land up front that can be paid for later on, but also can help to assemble land. There are tax incentive tools that can be brought to bear and maybe other funding sources to upgrade infrastructure and assist with those kinds of costs. Do you see Atlanta doing that kind of work where they're, um, picking very specific sites to almost do pilot projects and bringing lots of resources to the table. Yeah. And I think that one thing to, to give the mayor some props and clarify is that one of the sites in the governing magazine they mentioned is um, there's like 77 acres of not that far from downtown. That's a lot of land. But what they didn't mention is that part of that's in Atlanta public schools. That's in, I think the housing authority, that's the mayor you know, and the city owns. So it's, quasi-governmental agency, so it's not all one entity, but the mayor has been really great at building bridges with these other organizations, say, we all need to work together. APS, your land is great. We need it. You need a school, but not there. So, like, looking at land swaps and, and just figuring out the best outcomes for all parties, and we've had mayors in the past that have not had constructive dialogue with other, you know, quasi-governmental agencies where this stuff would never happen. So, that's been great. Um, we, so we do have a lot of land. I haven't seen like the, the GIS map of it. I've been assured that there's an insane amount of land. We would be shocked to see how many like parcels are color coded for the different entities, um, which is probably true for a lot of cities, but it's also about, I think you're, it's a great point. How do you be strategic? Where are the places that could have impact and get traction? Part of, again, this is an Atlanta challenge is we need a lot of workforce housing. So we're trying to figure out sites where we can do this, right? Like where we're not trying to, we don't have to capture full market rate. We're not trying to bring land to the strongest neighborhoods. We need housing really sort of everywhere. It does become transit adjacent, like 
transit characteristics, other things start to fold in and matter, but we need housing. And we've also got a land, tr- a city of Atlanta land trust, a land land trust that's really getting up to speed. And that's providing another really powerful tool to layer on to deliver permit affordability. So it's not just city owned land, but we're doing a lot of work for the land trust on multiple projects and they're getting involved with other developers and clients and, and uh, all coming to the table, say like, here's a 30 acre site that's been vacant from the housing authority. We could all come together and do something. And the housing authority hasn't developed in like 50 years. They don't know how to develop. They're really excited to have people say, oh yes, we can put your land in productive use. It takes pressure off of them to have their land being moved forward. So land is, um, land is not exactly readily available, but there's a lot of land if you can figure out how to move the levers and dials to get something together. And it's about having great nonprofit partners in a, along with the city to, to pull this together. And so we're spending a lot of time organizing these pieces to make these projects viable. Do you think that philanthropy can play a role in a model like this, or do you see that happening in Atlanta? Yeah. So we're fortunate that a, a lot of philanthropy, the major philanthropic organizations and foundations are very much housing aware and housing focused. So that's wonderful. What's always challenging with philanthropy is they're very zoning scared. They don't want to rock the boat, right? Because that, that's, you know, they want their donors to be happy and their donors very wealthy, status quo, go on and on. So this goal or hope for using city land is that hopefully that will be less zoning controversial because like, people want to see workforce housing. It's city land. It seems mission aligned. The foundations are ready to go. In some ways, I just need to know where to give, write the check to, right? How do you get the project going? And so, you know, we work with multiple um, community development corporations, nonprofits in the city here, Chattanooga. Foundations are stroking checks. Like that's usually not the resistance. Um, but what we see is our mission is to try to figure out how to organize these projects to make those dollars go as far as possible and get as much housing as possible out of that. So what are the, what's the best return for the investment? You pull a land trust in, you pull city land, you get a philanthropy in, you can really start to do some stuff if you know how to organize the levers and dials, which is a, a nice way to say you've got to do low parked walkable development. If you can do low parked walkable development that's you know near some form of bus you know transit, probably because our rail land is too expensive, in a lot of places you can really do some amazing stuff. Yeah. Do you have a sophisticated understanding? Does does the city generally and philanthropy and and government have a sophisticated understanding of transit-oriented development that can maybe help um, the conversations around zoning? Not enough. Not enough. I mean, the there's people that have the knowledge and understanding of like how important it is to densify around transit, but we have a lot of single-family neighborhoods of really rich white folk around transit, right? And these political leaders are really understanding of how easy it is to piss off really rich white folk around transit by trying to put more housing there, right? So it may be worse because they know the right thing to do, but they know the political cost and they're not willing to go there. That's certainly a challenge in my city too. And it's it's a matter of, uh, I think, like we, like we were talking about the low hanging fruit with all the land that exists and being really strategic about where these projects can occur and starting to do some pilot projects to maybe, 
maybe demonstrate and market the benefits of what the city can do. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on some of these larger sites. Uh, You're an an urban designer, you're an architect. Uh, Do you have a perspective about what the city ought to do with the large sites that are mentioned? I think they're on mostly the right track and I don't have, like, like I will maybe, um, we'll use one example. There's a, I think it's like about a three quarter acre site, if I remember right, of a fire state, a one story fire station in midtown Atlanta. And this is some of the most expensive land in the city. Midtown is on fire with development. I mean, the Google, Facebook, all the big tech companies are there. Georgia Tech anchors it. Like, everybody wants to be there. So the pitch, which I don't think is invalid, is to take that land. They can allow a 50-story tower there that would work totally fine for housing, but they want the first three stories to be a new fire station. And so, like, it seems a little bit funky to me, but it – like, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But I was curious, like, if you're willing to move that fire station, you know, a half mile south, you know, not far from its service area, but there's a lot of land that's vacant parking lot and cheaper. It's just a trade-off question. You know, what's the cost of picking up a new, just a simple fire station on a simple parcel over there and just build a really good tower versus building a tower over a three-story fire station? You know, that's just a cost-benefit trade-off. Um, it makes it more complicated. It's kind of fun for the city to say, hey, we built a tower over a fire station. I, it might be more cost effective just to build a fire station a little bit down the road. But the the notion of that land could provide so much more benefit to the city and get them a new fire station if they think creatively, I think is amazing. I think that's a great idea. Right. So so hats off on that. The um, 70 plus acre site in kind of the southeastern part of town. There's been a lot of interesting challenges. We're looking at some land in that mix with a nonprofit, but there was a really the absolute worst public light tech housing in the state. I mean, Forest Cove, there's been tons of articles. Um, our local NPR stations have a lot of great coverage. I mean, this needed to be condemned. People needed to be moved out. It needed to be torn down. And it, the city went to bat and put city funds together to help relocate residents to get them out of there because the developer, the owner was just not doing it. And also the developer didn't get around YTech funding to renovate and some buildings shouldn't be renovated. They should be scraped. All that's kind of a really compressed history to say that that land is like 70 or 80 acres on the table that could have a lot of really amazing outcomes. That's so much land. I mean, it's a mini city. And so that's kind of the scale of opportunity. Um, But it's also about being thoughtful. Like, you know, do you, if you plan that out to require 50 million, 80 million of infrastructure, new streets and all kinds of stuff like that, you don't allow for a thoughtful development pattern. It could sit for a while. Atlanta housing, we were involved in a site not that far away, which is another probably 78 acre site. And they put in designed all these crazy new streets and roads. And like, what are you guys doing? It's a great plan. They need to find $40 million. They don't have to put the streets and roads in. So we're going to sit on this project for years until they figure out that budget buster. They didn't have to design it that way. Yeah, that's incredible. So zooming out and kind of thinking about this this article and this initiative, uh, philosophically, I think it very much aligns with the overall Strong Towns conversation because what we're essentially talking about is better public asset management. And, uh, you know, land is a resource and cities own quite a bit of it. And so this is really a great opportunity for cities to unlock the potential and 
drive implementation goals alongside that, um, both from a kind of a social equity perspective and also a financial sense. I see this as also somewhat of a solvency strategy because it's about reinvesting in land that is already served by infrastructure and using the public sector to drive that reinvestment where the market is not necessarily supporting or driving that currently and and having better outcomes as a result. Do you see this as a solvency strategy? D- does Atlanta perhaps see it in that way? Uh, I think so, but I want to maybe shift scale a little bit and talk about pivot to Dalton, Georgia, because we had city leadership of Dalton touring us around Atlanta, a lot of our housing infill projects today in the hot sun. Um, And and Dalton is a tons of jobs, have a huge solar plant booming carpet and all like the manufacturing is really going and they have no housing. And so we've been talking to them for a bit, you know, they've got multiple sites near their downtown that really need to have housing on them to support their downtown. But these are like the three to four acre sites, right? This is a very man-sized piece of land for a city. So we're working with them to conceptualize, to visualize what could happen. What does dense walkable housing look like? But also how to be really thoughtful to tee this up to be a successful project for a local developer, right? That they could get the zoning in place. We can help get the architecture ready. We can get all the pieces together. But city doesn't have to be developer. Right. They just need to get, you know, this is about smart, shovel ready approaches, but it's also about helping them get their zoning ready so they can do more of this. Right. Because their zoning is a, is a barrier. So it's helping them unlock their barriers through pilot projects. So it's it's a solvency issue for them They're They desperately need housing and they need housing to support downtown. So it's about like, let's train you how development works. Let's train you how zoning can can be a positive, not a negative. And let's train up your local development community to get good outcomes, right? Like to do this well. And so and it's a lot easier to think about three acres with some, you know, the streets are in place. You're talking about sidewalks and street trees, not massive infrastructure improvements. That's an easier scale to get your head around than a 75 acre tract of land in a major American city, right? So we like that three to five acre, three to 10 acre scale because there's a lot of good and those, there's a lot more of those than the 75 acre parcels. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's the, the same in my neck of the woods, and I'm sure a lot of mid mid to mid-large size cities across the country have uh, countless, uh, countless sites that are in that scale that desperately need something on it, um, especially if they're already served by infrastructure, although deferred maintenance is a huge issue. Any other thoughts on kind of this overall idea? Have you heard any rumblings from the private sector? Is this something that is is embraced at this point and people are enthusiastic about? Um, I think so. We're in a bubble in that, you know, the vast majority of our work is in workforce housing. Um, and so we've been sheltered from some of the capital market issues and private sector challenges around housing. And so because we're in this bubble, we see most of our clients and partners are municipalities, between development corporations or nonprofits. And so there's so much focus, emphasis and um, desire to move things forward that there's a lot of willing partners. We are always pushing to make them uncomfortable to say, well, this is great, but zoning has got to change, too. This isn't enough. Like we can pilot and help make this work. 
but we need you to show up for these other messy things. And like, it's pushing these groups to be into out of their comfort zone to help us make our city function for everybody. Um, but we, we see much, we, we have a lot of traction. We see a lot of traction. We, we see endless need, right? We see that the private sector does not know how to deliver workforce housing well. Right. Um, and so we're helping to lay out these models to do that better so that our private sector clients can follow behind and understand how this makes money. Because if it doesn't make money, it's not going to get done. And the, the city's trying to figure it out too. And I commend them for pushing in these efforts to, to test and try. And again, it's like increment, test, try. Don't swing for a home or on your first one. Let's get some bunts and singles, right? Let, let's, let's get some practice. Get the wheels, you know, get the, the engine going before you go for the, the big 75 acre thing. But it doesn't mean you can't master and do some some of that kind of stuff but like don't try to be your own developer right like it's it's just really hard yeah it is it is very hard and uh if the zoning is not being adjusted and updated and tweaked um it's going to be even harder (laughs) that's kind of the thing that i've noticed with a lot of larger cities people will come up with well i'll start by saying that larger cities often have many, many brilliant people who are able to put together great programs and policy, but the politics of zoning, it can be a huge detriment to all of these ideas. And you mentioned, you know, out, outline cities of the Atlanta Metro and maybe even small towns. They, they may have zoning politics that exist, but the dynamics are very different when you have smaller scale cities. So I, I, I wonder if cities like that may, you know, learn from the, the policy ideas, the programs that are being initiated in some of these larger me- metropolitan centers and be able to implement them in a more tactful way because of zoning politics. And it certainly depends on the city that you're working in. So, yeah, we have a lot of, you know, some deep theories of change. And I think Dalton, what we're working with them on is we're going to do a planned urban planning and development of PUD because that's the only zoning district they have that's going to work. But they're going to have to rewrite their PUD ordinance to have a PUD ordinance that even works what we want to do. But we're helping them understand like they want the outcome. And when it's a pilot and you're, when you're designing to one site, there's a lot less risk, right? We're bringing trusted partners together. So we're helping them look at this strategically in an incremental fashion to improve their zoning in one flexible district, right, that they have control over. So that's a really good step. The goal is then to have them grow, hopefully, to an overlay for, like, neighborhoods around downtown to start to incrementally allow more there, too. Right? I think the cautionary tale is zoning is hard, but if you can get a good pilot with cute houses that people can touch and feel, that can build confidence. You know, I was so excited today because we had a couple council people we had the fire marshal, we had a city manager, we had the head of zoning. We were showing them all these different kinds of infill housing neighborhoods and talking about challenges and opportunities, right? Like, you know, this is a two foot front setback. Look at that porch. Does that feel good? Yes, that's beautiful and amazing. You know, like, what are the things you really need to legislate or regulate and what don't you? And when you can have the fire marshal talking, like we're all talking together about how do we solve problems? I mean, you just can't get that done in Atlanta. Like in Atlanta, the mayor... Like bang his fist on the table and say, make this happen, then people will go find a way to make it happen. But the collaborative potential in a smaller city like Dalton is just, it's, it's amazing. I think they can look at Atlanta and say, that's a mess. We can do better. And, and we're helping them find a pathway to do better without, you know, 
I think they, they can, the scale is much more easy to get your hands around and to have an impact in these you know, towns of 20 to 180,000 people than it is in a major metro. Here, we're just unwinding so much bureaucracy and morass with every project. It's, um, that's why we're helping these other towns. Like, it's just, there's so much more opportunity. Yeah, we experienced the same thing working, um, you know, in the Kansas City region and the Midwest. Um, just the idea of getting and, and, you know, the leadership is great, but the idea of getting all of those people in the same room, <laughs> like the, just the scheduling, I feel like would be impossible in a place like, you know, Kansas City as compared to a smaller town of uh, 20 to 40, 80,000 people where there's just less, less cooks in the kitchen and, um, you know, it's easier to get people in a room together to make decisions. And I think that may be the greatest strategic benefit of a lot of smaller municipalities. Yeah. And again, it's like, don't, you know, it's one thing to say, let's change your whole zoning ordinance for an entire city. Like that's a big lift and that's really scary. Right. And, you know, but to change a few, to do a pilot or two, to test and to increment, you know, I know Chuck's talked in the past about like how you, you know, upzone a little bit, all your districts a little bit. Like it's kind of in that realm of how do we test and upzone a little bit, show that the world doesn't end, get people to buy in, that we want more of that kind of good stuff. Look, you can't just do it all at once. You've, you've got to bring them along with you. There's just no other way to do it effectively. I mean, and I say that in the midst of like massive housing shortages in Dalton and Atlanta, but when you try to go fast, it gets hard. Yeah, especially um, in the realm of of zoning where most people don't really know anything about zoning until the topic comes up and there's some kind of outrage around it. Um, That's just not – I didn't learn about zoning until I went to school to learn about zoning specifically. So it's just not something that uh, even if you have a really strong uh, civic – level of civic engagement in your city that people really understand the nuance of. Uh, Unfortunately, it's such an exciting topic and people just don't seem to be that interested in it unless it affects them directly. (laughs) Well, people need, you know, people don't have trust that we can build nice things anymore in America. Yeah, totally. They need need to see that we can build nice things and that then, then that we should allow rules to allow nice things to be built, but they need to see it to believe it. And I mean, there's a lot of reason for skepticism in a lot of places, so I don't begrudge skepticism, but that's why we're approaching this from, you know, we say it's like, you know, educate, pilot, and then policy. Don't try to change your zoning until you've educated and done some piloting so people can trust and verify that the good stuff can come out of this. Yeah, I can completely agree. I know in, in our world, there's a lot of debate about zoning and, you know, the idea of getting rid of zoning completely and... Um, I think people just don't have a lot of confidence in the building professions uh, for good reason, because we, our country has built a lot of really ugly places. And I think you and I would both agree that we don't want people to build ugly places. We'd like to build places that are worth caring about long-term and that endure long-term. And I should point out that all those ugly places were fully compliant with zoning. Totally. They often are completely compliant with zoning. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, uh, we can end it there. But before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been up to these days could be something we've been reading, watching, listening to or activities 
Um, so Eric, I'm going to put you on the spot. What have you been up to? So uh, ahead of this podcast, I really worked hard to finish Just Action, the um, oh, good. to Color of Law. So Richard Rothstein and Leah, I think Leah is his daughter's name, that helped write it. One of the things, my big takeaway from this book, one is important to read, a lot of good stuff, is you know they lay out 12 chapters and they're very direct with kind of to, almost like to-do lists of like things that need to be done that we should be doing as citizens to make more inclusive, better places to kind of reconcile and address these inequities of all the challenges laid out in a color of law. Zoning was one chapter and it wasn't a long chapter. And when they talk about, you know, a lot of stuff that, again, Urban 3, I give them a plug for all their work on appraisal bias um, and, and or valuation bias from the tax assessor standpoint, which is different than appraisals, but appraisals, banks, lending, realtors, you know, they, they really call out a lot of different groups. The point is like if you want like a just, fair, inclusive community, it, it's not just zoning. Fixing zoning isn't nearly enough. You need to work on all these other issues as well. And it really it's going to have to be local and national, but local to some degree in terms of really trying to overcome a bias challenge. I'm um, in the real real estate community with steering, um, lending, you know, inequities. It's helpful to see the whole picture, right? Because I, I do get a little bit frustrated or nervous when I see folks kind of pie the table that if we just fix zoning, it's that's the silver bullet. It's going to be great. That's, yeah, I wish I wish it was. I mean, it, if zoning if zoning could save the world, then we would have figured it out by now, and we wouldn't have any problems. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one I was in Asheville um, speaking a couple of weeks ago in North Carolina, and um, did some touring with some city leadership, and you know they've got a lot of concerns, concerned strong. African-American neighborhoods that are really worried about zoning reform, they're just trying to hold on to what they have in a city with also deep housing pressure. And there's a lot of skepticism. And I'm like, this well-earned skepticism, right? And like, how do we talk about, you know, you know, tax, the, the tax, there's like city, there's a lot you can do with tax policy, right? To like protect seniors from, you know, increased tax, uh, property taxes. There's a lot of other things you could do. You can't just come to the table and say, hey, we're going to make your neighborhood great and fix your zoning. They should chase you out of the room as a city. Right. Like that's not the way to approach this is like there's all these challenges and, and talking about it in a multifaceted way is harder and slower. But I think we've got to we've got to be talking about this and and figure out how to calibrate. But not changing zoning isn't going to get the outcomes we want. Um, you know, so zoning is not the only answer. And you can't just look at it as a one one side of thing. As we, I think we agree. But you've got to get municipalities thinking about how do you bring other solutions to related problems to the table. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's a great down zone. I don't have anything nearly as robust as that. Um, I, I read Richard Rothstein's first book and um, haven't made made it around to reading this new book. So uh, I, I'll put that at the top of my list. That's great. It's, it's good. Everybody should, you know, I mean, go do arbitrary lines, you know, get color law you know, if you haven't read Walkable City, what are you doing? Get that one. But you know, <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but uh, but just action, you know, in terms of stuff that's just come out, this is really thoughtful. And it may be a little bit disappointing for the zoning nerds in the audience because it gets it's a short trip. But it's like, read all the other stuff. It all matters, too. Yeah, zoning is one tool. <laughs> it is one part of uh, a very big conversation. 
Uh, well, you mentioned that you were out in the oppressive heat of, of Atlanta. I don't know what what it's like there compared to Kansas City, but it's um, horribly hot here. And um, I've actually just been spending time becoming a morning person and doing like early morning hikes so that I can essentially stay inside for the rest of the day. <laughs> We've been fortunate. It's only like 90 degrees today with humidity, which is like bearable for Georgia in the summer. Yeah. Next week, this heat dome's coming our way. We're 98, 99, and I e-bike everywhere. So that's when it's, um, it's going to be warm. I might go to the mountains for a couple of days and just check out. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah, work remotely. <laughs> yeah. Next week's a great week to be remote. Yeah, definitely. It, yeah, it is. Um, it is incredibly hot here, and I... I I try to be as active as I can in the summer and I paddleboard a lot and it's just been too hot to do that after work. And so I've been waking up like really, really early and it is still incredibly hot, but I've been waking up early enough that is it's not oppressively hot um, just so that I can spend some time outside and not be stuck in the AC all day. Well, so we're, we're talking to El Paso, hoping to help them with some um, kind of incremental development solutions. And we were talking the other day, and there's the, a friend of the city side was saying that his AC can't keep up, right? I bet, it's yeah. 105 during the day and like 90 at night, and that the AC runs 24 hours a day and can't keep up. So this becomes really, you know, CNU talks about climate change and resilience and stuff like that, but there's like – if it's going to be 110 for like a month in the summer and that's where you want to live, this gets into now just physical design of place in order for HVAC to keep cool. Like, yeah. Like it's not even about like the fossil fuels to run your HVAC. It's like, what is the design solution to shade your house or to how, what should you be doing insulation or otherwise just to have it be habitable? Exactly. How does that play out with those that don't have the resources to insulate or other things? And we've got a lot of really interesting climate-related building science challenges coming our way for a major portion of the country. So, yeah, most definitely. Even if it if it becomes five degrees hotter in in the Southwest, and in addition to having no water in, in that region of the country, that poses an incredibly large problem. So I, I guess more to come on that. Yeah. All those folks in Phoenix, we got plenty of water in Atlanta. We don't have a lot of housing. We're building more, but if you want to tap out like, you know, the Carolinas and Georgia, we'd love to have you. Yeah. Lots of trees, lots of water. Green. Green. Very lush. Very lush. Yes. It's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Eric. This was a lot of fun. And I hope next time uh, you join us, we can uh, talk a little bit more about Atlanta. Awesome. Gabby, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Of course. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Upzone. Thanks, Eric. Let me show you what I'm about to do. Get down tonight